Hi, I'm Jay John. Welcome to Facing the Cannon. My guest on Facing the Cannon is Rod Williams, a former drug dealer. Rod Williams, welcome to Facing the Cannon. Thank you, Jay John. I've been really looking forward to today. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled you, you're here with us. Your book, Rod, Real Deal, The Real Deal. I, I've known you, um, I, I feel like I've known you a long time, but actually I've only known you a short time. Uh, but in that short time, I know that you are the real deal. And the subtitle of your book, A Life Freed from the Grip of Addiction. And uh, tell us the story of that. You moved from Wales to Guernsey. Tell us about that. Yes, so I lived in Wales. Um, I was born in Swansea and lived there till I was age 10. And I was brought up in Wales by uh, Christian parents. So from a very young age, I had Christian influence in my life. In fact, for the first 16 years of my life, I went to church practically every Sunday, sometimes up to three times. Now there's commitment. And uh, my dad was a police officer in South Wales. He actually served 30 years in the force. And my mum, for a period of time, was a, was a secretary to the chief of police in Swansea. But I never wanted to be a policeman growing up. In fact, I went in the opposite direction, as you'll hear in a moment. And then my parents' marriage broke down when I was age four. They separated, later divorced. And by age 10, both parents then had married uh, other partners. My mum married a man from Guernsey. And uh, I just want to say that both my step-parents are amazing, couldn't have asked for better step-parents. I know that's always the case, but that really did have a positive impact, actually, in mine and my older sister's life. So we moved to Guernsey, age 10, to start a brand new life on this beautiful island. My stepdad had done really well. He ran a business over there, and he had a big house on an acre of land that had a swimming pool, the garden the size of a small football pitch. So for a 10-year-old, it's quite kind of exciting. It felt like a permanent holiday. It, to be honest, it did. Yeah. I mean, the patio around the, the swimming pool was terracotta. So it was like a Spanish villa. So yes, it felt like that. I even had my own bathroom and I thought I'd made it in life. And yes, I started life in Guernsey, did the education thing, made friends very quickly. And Guernsey is a very safe island to live on. I mean, they had honesty boxes on the roads at the time. So you could just stop your car, buy flowers or veg and put your money in the box and move on. They've still got some uh, there today. So I had the best opportunity to really do well in life and always wanted to work in the finance industry. I was good at maths. That was my favorite subject at school. It wasn't that great at anything else, but maths and finance industry was my goal. And around about age 16, I, uh, I got my GCSEs and I started to go to a local college to do a business studies course. And I suppose that's when things started to change. That's when I started to make some unwise choices. And that's when I decided actually church wasn't for me anymore. You know, up until that point, I'd never made a commitment to follow Jesus like a lot of my family had. And I didn't really get the God stuff and I certainly didn't want the God stuff. So around that age, I said no to church. Now, there was a particular uh, time I, I read this about you, Rod. You actually went to hear an evangelist who gave an appeal to become a follower of Jesus. And you were quite convicted, almost about to go, but you didn't go forward. And then you chose a different route. Go on. Where did that road lead you down? 
So yeah, I started to experiment with drugs at college. Some of my new friends would come in on a Monday. They would talk about going up house parties on the weekend, getting smashed off their face on drugs, um, drinking alcohol. And after hearing these stories, I was curious as to why they were having so much fun doing the things my dad always told me, you know, wasn't a good thing to do because of he saw, you know, the devastation and the consequences of drug use through his work every day. But I started to go out with them and I started to use drugs. I started to smoke cannabis initially, started to drink. And I'll be honest with you, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the buzz that the drugs gave me, but also enjoyed that feeling of acceptance that this popular gang in Guernsey, this group of people wanted me to be part of their friendship circle. Anyway, fast forward the clock, I got my qualification, um, age 18 from college, and I got a job within a month working in the finance industry, initially as a trainee accountant. So as you can imagine, my parents were really proud I was going to work suited and booted, earning good money for somebody my age. So things looked really, you know, positive for me, future career path, you know, going up the, the sort of career ladder in the finance industry. But I was earning a lot more money now, and uh, it meant that I had more money to spend on the wrong things and I went into the club scene and I got introduced to ecstasy tablets. That became then my drug of choice for the next five years. I started to go around with people who were selling drugs and very quickly um, I started to do what they were doing. Somebody offered me one night a bag of 30 ecstasy tablets to sell for him and he said, you know, I'll give them to you cheaper Rod, you can make five pound on each one, he'll pay for your weekend. And I just saw the pound sign flash in front of me. I saw that this was going to be an easy way to make a few extra pound on the weekend. And I took those drugs, I sold them, paid what I needed to pay him. And, and that sort of... So you became a dealer. I became so a dealer very a user, quickly. You became a dealer as well. I became a dealer as well. And as the weeks went on, I would take on more drugs and make more money. And really, I was... Yeah, I embroiled, I stepped into this world that promised me everything. It promised me power, it promised me popularity, and it promised me a lot of pleasure. I would walk in the pubs and clubs and people would flock to me because they knew I had something that would supposedly make their weekend better. And like I said, I, you know, I would take on more, make more money, but I wasn't happy. I wasn't no. satisfied with the money I was making. I wanted more and more. There was that something missing. I thought that all the money and the popularity yeah. would, would fill that something missing, but it never did. And you gambled and you got addicted to gambling. I did. And, th and that was just another path I took really as a, as a way, a strategy to make more money. But I got addicted straight away. As soon as I put that first bet on that horse that day, I became addicted. And that took me on a, a six year journey um, where gambling addiction had a strong hold on my life. Between uh, age of 18 and 24, I lost over a hundred thousand pounds gambling. That's how bad gambling addiction had on my life. So. You know, I'm in this cycle now of, of drugs and crime and addiction and the money I was losing in the bookies, I had to make up some somehow. So then the only way I could do that was through drugs, selling drugs. But then into my early 20s, I started to import drugs and smuggle drugs into the island because there was more money to be made. I could cut out the middleman make more money, pay my debts, pay my gambling debts, and just believe in the lie that, you know, one day we'll all be fine and I'll make enough money to stop working, to stop living this criminal life and live happily ever after. But as you can imagine, things just got worse. I got in more debt, 
friends of mine were going to prison for things I was involved in. I started to get arrested now um, on suspicion of being involved in these things. My house, parents' house would be raided quite often. I'd be in police chases. And and, and obviously it affected my, my family, affected my loved ones. They were devastated at this person, their son, who only a few years previously you know, was just a, just a normal person. And so, right. Uh, I know there's a story that you owed somebody a significant amount of money. You had didn't have the money, so you took a bigger risk yeah. in dealing with drugs. I did. And you got caught. I did. And got sent to prison. That's right. And so, yeah, I mean, addiction takes us to the lowest common denominator. And in two, March 2002, I found myself in Brixton in a squat in London, and that was my lowest point. I'd just come back from Thailand where I got addicted to methamphetamine over there, and now I was addicted to crack cocaine as well. I was replacing one for the other, and this was my lowest point of my life. And I owed a debt, and the only way I could pay the debt was to take drugs on me myself back to the island. And I decided that once I'd paid that debt, I was going to stop what I was going to do, what I was doing and what I was involved in. And I'd made that decision because I hated the person I was and I hated myself. So this, for me, was a journey to freedom. But I got busted at Guernsey Airport and I got caught with the heroin and crack cocaine and I ended up getting sentenced to four years. But that's when things started to change. So you go to prison, your family are devastated. And then what happened in prison? So started to build up a relationship with my family again and they were there for me, most of my friends weren't and I remember speaking to my mum for the first time and my mum said to me, Rod, we forgive you, we love you, you can't change the past but your future can be changed and she said, will you do one thing for me, will you give God an opportunity to show himself real for you, he's the only one that can change your life, nobody else but Jesus Christ and I'd heard lots of obviously stuff about Jesus being preached in church and from my mum and dad over the years. But this time I was serious when I said, yes, I'll consider that. I mean, my mum and dad sent me in lots of testimony books, Across on the Switchblade, Run Baby Run, and uh, Chasing the Dragon and books like that. And I started to read these books. Every time I was locked up, I'd get the book out, out and read. And God was starting to do something in my heart because I was reading these stories of gang members and gangsters and drug addicts and prostitutes and people's lives who were ravaged just by addiction and extreme violence. And I was reading about that along on their journey of chaos and devastation, they had all had this encounter with Jesus Christ. And I was reading about how Jesus was changing their lives, bringing healing and transformation and restoration. And I was reading about what they were doing now, helping other people. And I went on a journey up there thinking, is this Jesus really the real deal that I'm reading about? Could he do that for me after everything that I've done? And I'd even compare, well, I've not been that bad. Maybe there is hope for me after all. And thinking, is you know everything my mum and dad told me about Jesus, is this true after all? And one night I got locked up in June 2002 and I decided to see if this Jesus was the real deal. And I leaned on, on, on the floor and I leaned over my bed and I just started to pray and I just started to cry out to this God if he was there. And there was a little prayer at the end of the book that you could read to ask Jesus into your life. And I read that and then I just started to, to pray and cry out in my own words. And it was a prayer that went, God, if you're real, Will you show yourself to me, Jesus, if you did really die on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven, that I could have this peace and joy that I'm reading about with all these individuals. Hope invaded my world that night. The prayers of my mum and my dad and my family were answered that night. And that just started, you know, an adventure with God that is still going on today. So you got up from your knees and you knew 
something was different. I knew so, something was different. So, so to quote um, Jesus Christ speaking to Nicodemus in the Bible, you were born again. I was born again. And it all made sense. And it just all made sense. And there was no doubt whatsoever. And I woke up the next morning and that peace was still there. And I started to read the Bible. There was a Gideon's Bible on the bookshelf and I started to open it. And I started to read the Gospels and I started to read the New Testament and I couldn't stop reading it. And I'd be highlighting and underlining verses in the Bible. And I'd laugh to myself because when I saw people do that in church, I used to think, what are you doing that for? Why are you highlighting stuff? And now I was like, all oh, that, I couldn't put the Bible down. And God was speaking to me and just affirming what had happened, that this was real. Yes. Because some people say, don't they, you know, I'll, I'll believe when I see. And 1 Peter 1.8 says, it says, doesn't it, you know, even though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible joy. And that's Christianity, isn't it? We believe and then we see. Absolutely. So even though I'd not seen Jesus, I experienced this inexpressible joy now that filled my world and filled my heart. And I would walk around the prison, the corridors, and I'd just have this joy and I'd be smiling. And some of my friends you know, would comment, because this was my first prison sentence, some of them had been in for long sentences before. And they say, you're doing prison really well, Rod, how come? And they would notice that I was just doing it well and there was just something different about me. And uh, I and started to, to pray and I started to see answers to prayer. But I'd be lying if I said from that moment, my life was a bed of roses. If you've read my book, I fell yes. flat on my face. And, uh, and yeah, I got drawn back into some, some stuff. I got out on parole after 16 months. And then uh, I was meant to go to like Teen Challenge. Yes. That was the plan and we planned. But as soon as I got out of prison, I sort of changed the plan. I thought I can do this by myself in my own strength. I'll go to church on a Sunday, still have God, but still mess a bit around with my friends a little bit. They're okay. And, and I got drawn back in so quickly into that world again. And I ended up in a, in a police chase, I ended up escaping police custody and ended up having my parole. I revoked, ended up going back uh, to prison. And uh, for so, me... So, Rod, when you look back at that time, you had this incredible encounter with the Lord mm. and you knew it was real. Uh, and yet you got sucked back in. Um, mm. That is the, there's, there's temptation, isn't there, that's constantly enticing us. Yes. So now looking back, um, what advice would you give us now about not being sucked back in? I think for me, I'd made the decision to get extra support. Sometimes we need extra support, especially if you come from um, a background of addiction and extreme addiction like I'd been in. And sometimes you need residential help. And I knew in my heart of hearts that you know, a team challenge or a similar program was the answer to me, to have that hardcore discipleship and to, to make sure that, you know, going back to that lifestyle and, and relapsing, you know, wasn't going to happen. But I, I sort of, I went against what I knew God wanted for my life. And, and I believe God's perfect plan was for me to go to Teen Challenge at that point. And, and perhaps things wouldn't have happened as, as they did. So my advice would be, you know, get all the support, get all the help that you can, because you can't do this by yourself. I kidded myself thinking I could do it in my own strength, but I fell flat on my face. There's a great support network out there, the local church, get involved, get connected, get connected to a good Christian group who will pray for you, who will stand with you, who will encourage you. And if that means perhaps getting residential support, 
then that, you know, it's worth it. It really is because it changed my life. And then you, of course, Rod, did get that support. I did. Uh, and was that support in Liverpool? It was in Liverpool. Uh, yes. Well, a little town called Witness by That's Liverpool, right. the Lighthouse yes. Foundation. So I got out of prison and I made the choice to go on the programme because I knew this time. You needed it. I needed it. And when I walked through the doors of that supported housing uh, called the Lighthouse Foundation, I decided to give Jesus 100% of my life. Yeah. And I've not looked back since. And that yeah. was the best decision because I think t- sometimes we can you know, give Jesus 50%, 50% and then 50% in the world, it doesn't work. No, absolutely. All... Yeah, and I think sometimes, uh, Rod, it's a bit like uh, the bricks all come together and great, now I've got it, I see it, but you haven't cemented them in. Mm, and I think right. sometimes it's cementing them mm. in to hold them together. And, and that's what obviously happened to you. That's what happened to me. So then... Post that you're you're kind of freed from addictions. Yes. Um, you're you know the Lord. What happens then? I worked in that rehab for four years, helping other addicts, and I suppose God was using my my mess and turning it into a miraculous message to help other yes. people, to lead other people into that place of freedom. Um, I met my wife at the time of the church we were going to, and um, when I started working the rehab, and we've been married now fourteen years, and God brought an amazing woman of God into my life. So blessed. And, and I worked also on the church site. We had 45 retirement bungalows for the over 16. So I was a chaplain there for a while. So um, four days a week, I was working in the rehab. Then on a Friday, I was working with elderly people, just sharing the gospel, doing Bible studies, praying, visiting. And it was just amazing just to think the journey that God you know, had led me on. And now you're working with? Christians Against Poverty. Christians Against Poverty. And your main role within that is? I'm a lead evangelist for Christians Against Poverty. I ran a debt centre for five years um, when I was living in Widnes. And it's been yeah, an incredible 12 year adventure with CAP, you know, equipping and training our frontline workers who run one of our CAP services, whether it's a debt centre or um, one of the job clubs or life skills or fresh start groups to go into that community, empowered and trained to, to share the love of Jesus. Amazing. And it's just a great vehicle really for, for the church you know, for, for social action and evangelism to come together. And when it does, it's powerful. And I witnessed that firsthand when I went into people's homes, you know, offering them a solution out of debt, but also offering them Jesus Christ. And it works. It really, really does. Now, your, your wife had a dream. I love this story. Tell us that story and where that story led to. Yeah, in, in August 2015, my wife um, said, Rod, can we have a chat? And she, I said, what? And she said, I really believe that God wants us to adopt. And uh, I said, oh, OK, because um, I think we should pray about it. And, uh, and we just set six months to really pray and seek God. Then halfway through the six months, my wife came to me and said, Rod, I had a dream last night. And I really believe God wants us to adopt a child with Down syndrome. I thought, okay, tell me about the dream. And what she saw in the dream was a picture of a baby. And on the baby grow, there was writing. And the writing said, keep calm. It's only an extra chromosome. Yes. And the next day after, after the dream, she was um, on, on, on the computer, on the internet, social media. And she saw that exact same image and that exact same picture. And she just really felt that, that confirmation that this is what we wanted to do. And it really did move my heart just hearing it, just share and just knowing because my, my, my wife's not a dreamer like that. And so this was, you know, 
For me, it was like, hey, this has to be God. And we prayed about it. Then in the December that year, we decided to uh, move forward with adoption, and which we did through Adoption uh, Matters. And were you a bit nervous? Because obviously you've got a criminal record, um, so you're not naive. You've got to put all that down in the application. We had to put that in the application and, and the first visit with a social worker. And he said, you know, I'm being honest, don't get your hopes up. You know, yeah, we might, you know, you might get approved, you might not. So we went through the whole process really of, uh, of, I mean, we trusted in God, obviously, but there was still an element in doubt, doubt at times, especially when, you know, they were having meetings about me and my criminal record and discussing, you know, a possible path forward. And long story short, we got approved. And it was Which incredible. is miraculous. It is miraculous. And and six months ago, we got approved to do foster respite fostering as well, which again is was a miraculous journey. But um, a bit more about, about the adoption. Yes. So three months in after we'd been approved, we were still waiting for the match. And then the social workers were, because we were very specific and they were trying to get us to widen our search. But we really had that conviction that God wanted us to adopt a child with Down syndrome, but a girl, we really felt a girl. And they said, you know, you're not going to have a baby. You'll probably be, you know, a child over three. Anyway, we got a phone in the June um, of 2017 saying, July, sorry, um, a baby's been born. It's got Down syndrome. The parents don't feel that they can manage and they've relinquished her. And on the phone, the social worker said, you know, they, you know they've asked for the baby to be put in a separate room. And uh, I just really broke my heart. Yeah. And Mother Teresa says that the... The worst kind of poverty is loneliness and that feeling of being unloved. And I just had that picture straight away of, of a baby that should have been, you know, been receiving the love and and wasn't and was lonely. And, and it, I just had that picture and it just broke my heart. Within a week, we went to see the baby and uh, we remember holding, me and my wife, holding this bundle of beauty for the first time. And we had the option, you know, yay, let's go forward or no. And no wasn't even in the equation. Yeah. You know, we said yes straight away. And we spent two weeks then in the hospital with her and we took her home. And it just all happened so quickly and it was God completely in it. And, uh, and, and it just gave us a glimpse of, the, of God's love for mankind. You know, when we you know, we're adopted yeah, into absolutely. his family, when we come to him and, and just it gave us a glimpse because we've not experienced like love like we've felt before with, with our little baby. And she's our daughter now, she's three and a half years old. Um, we went through the courts and we had a party and a celebration. And that's what happens, doesn't it, in heaven? There's Absolutely. a party and a celebration. And, uh, and it's the most, one of the most incredible things that we've, we've done. And we, it's a privilege. We count it a privilege that God would want to use us to bring our little daughter Absolutely. into Absolutely. And, and what's so amazing is that, you know, um, our Heavenly Father, uh, because of Jesus, adopted us. You know, he chose us. Us, chose us us and you chose your daughter um i mean that's that's very profound actually the truth of that isn't it absolutely that, that she'll always know you know that you chose her because you loved her that's right yeah absolutely so rod how do you see yourself you, how do you describe yourself as an evangelist mm-hmm. yeah um you work with Christians Against Poverty. You're trying to help people in life to discover or rediscover the wonder of God's grace. That's right. How do you see uh, your future? 
So I see, I set up Real Deal Ministries when my book was published in 2014, really to act as a vehicle to bring the life transforming message of the gospel to the lost and broken. I believe that, you know, that God has a plan for every single person. And through Real Deal Ministries, there's two arms to it. So an arm is an outreach in the prisons. So through fundraising, I'm able to get free copies of my books in the prisons. But also I speak under the Real Deal Ministries banner in churches throughout the UK doing outreach events and uh, and I, I probably feel that that's going to grow over the coming years and I'm excited about that I'm excited about what I'm doing through CAP as well and really you know everything's evangelism and I, I think me and my wife are just at that place where we're always open to God for whatever he's got next and um, wherever that is whether it's with addicts with people in debt the elderly children we're just open, we're excited, we're expectant, and we just want to serve and, and honour God and represent Jesus well to a, a lost and hurting world. That's our heart. That's, and just see how God leads with that, really. So anyone that's viewing now, Rod, they don't yet know the Lord. They haven't, you know, bowed the knee. They haven't opened the door. Um, can you give them a word and would you pray a prayer for them I'd love to. to be born again? I would absolutely love to. Firstly, I just want to say that nobody is out of the reach of God's love. It doesn't matter how bad your past has been, maybe your present situation. It doesn't matter how many times you've messed up or fouled out. God, God's love is unconditional. He loves you. He's got a plan for your life. And you've heard my story of hope and you need to know that hope is available for you. And hope is available because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. When he died on the cross, he paid the price for your sins, for your wrongdoings. And you can put that right right now by saying a simple prayer with me. A similar prayer that I said in June 2002. And this is a prayer where you can open up the door of your heart to allow Jesus to come in so that you can experience forgiveness and this new life that he has in store for you. So if you could just say this prayer with me right now. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins. I admit that I've missed the mark, I've messed up, I've sinned, and I ask for your forgiveness. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Please fill me with your peace and your joy and help me live this new life. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that prayer, a prayer for you, Lord, for every person that prayed that prayer, maybe for the first time, maybe as a way of reaffirming your faith, in the name of Jesus Christ, I announce and I pronounce his forgiveness over you. May you know his cleansing, liberation from the past. May you know the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, empowering your life, filling you with his Holy Spirit. May you know his peace, his presence, his power. And we pray for your protection as you endeavour to build your life on Jesus. And we pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Rod Williams, the real deal. You really are, Rod. It's great to hear your, your story of transformation and redemption. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Thank you, J. John. Wasn't that inspiring? Great to have Rod. 
Um, great to hear his story of transformation. And it does give us that hope that if God can do it in Rod's life, he can do it in our lives. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.